the San Francisco Experience Podcast. Brought to you by Jim Herlihy. Independent commentary from a Silicon Valley perspective for a global audience. Featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 22, Episode 18. Imperial San Francisco. Urban Power. Earthly Ruin. Talking with author Gray Brecken. Our guest today is Gray Brecken, an historical geographer and author. His chief interest is the state of California and the environmental impact of its cities upon their hinterlands, and in particular, San Francisco, and how that city has developed at the expense of its environs and natural resources for the benefit of dynastic elites. He joins us today from Sicily. Hello, Gray, and welcome to the show. Hello, Jim. Good to be with you. Gray, please take a few moments and tell us about yourself. Sure, Jim. I grew up in a once beautiful valley called Santa Clara Valley, which when I was growing up was becoming Silicon Valley. I didn't particularly like what I was seeing. I suppose it made me an environmentalist at that time. I read Rachel Carson's Silent Spring in 1962 when I was in high school. And so I fled. I got to Berkeley, to UC Berkeley, and I got all three of my degrees at UC Berkeley. I settled in Berkeley. First, I got a bachelor's degree in uh, history and geography, and then I came back in the 70s and got a graduate degree in art history, and that taught me how to see. And the images in Imperial San Francisco are very important to the argument of the book, and it's because of that experience I had in art history. Then in 1985, I had a kind of transformative experience and got the idea for what became Imperial San Francisco. So I came back to Berkeley. I had been doing environmental writing and TV production. I came back in the early 90s and wrote it as a dissertation. It came out in 1999, published by University of California Press. And much to my astonishment, it became a regional bestseller. It was kind of ignored in the East Coast because they thought that it was about a pretty city out on the West Coast. But in fact, it's about much more than that. I was very pleased with the reception of it. But then I decided that I needed to do something a bit more upbeat. And so I created a project called The Living New Deal, which has grown beyond my wildest expectations. And what it is, is a project to identify all of the physical remains of the New Deal, which are all around us, but we don't mm-hmm. see it. And that's become a nationwide team effort to identify that enormous legacy. I just recorded Imperial San Francisco after 25 years as an audio book, and so it's getting a fresh set of legs now, uh-huh. and uh, that pleases me a lot, because I think it's timelier than ever. As a matter of fact, I think current events have sort of caught up Imperial San Francisco. Well, great. Give us a an overview of Imperial San Francisco. It's a different take on the city and county of San Francisco, and of course the environs and the, the surrounding area of San Francisco. You're right. Perhaps people beyond the Bay Area may have thought that the book was about a pretty city on the West Coast, but this is a different book than that. What inspired you to write it? And please give us the overview. In 1985, I was able to spend the winter in Venice, 
thanks to a friend of mine at that time who had finished, uh, it was Mel Scott, who had written a great history of planning in the Bay Area, 1959, and Mel loved Venice, and he knew that I hadn't quite found myself yet, was getting a little bit late, because I was almost 40 at that time, so he gave me a winter in Venice. While I was there, I was reading a lot about the history of Venice, and I realized that the most extraordinary and ingenious city had become that way because it had an empire in the eastern Mediterranean, and it had devastated that area and the cities within it in order to build itself. And I just thought, well, I could write that about the city that I know most, because I started walking around San Francisco when I was 16, and I was just fascinated by it and then by extension by cities in general. I began to write this book as a dissertation, and it's about how cities affect the land around them and for whom they do that. And so, because I know San Francisco so well, it's about some of the best-known names, family names, dynasties in San Francisco and how the city operates for them. Because a city doesn't do anything of its own accord. It does it for the sake of a small number of people, of families, of dynastic wealth, and that's certainly true for San Francisco. And in the process, it parasitizes the lands around it. In San Francisco's case, the entire Pacific Basin, which it took as its rightful empire, especially after the Spanish and Philippine-American wars and the acquisition of Hawaii in 1898. But the basis of it is mining. Because I see mining, it's really the way we treat the world. It's extractive, it's non-renewable, and um, it's kind of the model of how we do so much. Of course, San Francisco starts with the gold rush, but what people don't realize is it was really silver that propelled San Francisco, the silver of the Comstock Lode, which comes about 10 years after the gold rush. So the Comstock load plays a very big mm -hmm. role in the book, particularly in the building of some of these great fortunes. The core of the book is called The Thought Shapers. It's about those people who control our thoughts without us knowing about it by, con by owning and controlling the mass media. That's a subject that's interested me for a long time because in the 80s, I worked at KRON-TV, which, like the Chronicle, was a property owned by the de Young family, a family that most people don't know anything about except that their name is on the de Young Museum, which one of them donated to the city. But from that, I went into the Spreckles family and especially the Hearst family, especially William Randolph Hearst, who plays a major role mm -hmm. in the book. Well, Gray, how did San Francisco begin? We know the, and it's not mythology, of course, Mission Dolores, founded in 1776, I suppose is the starting point, but how and when did San Francisco begin? Well, it, it can be dated pretty precisely. It was uh, with the John Marshall's uh, so-called discovery of gold in 1848 in the mill race of John Sutter's mill on the American River. He discovered some nuggets of gold, and that triggered the great California gold rush. In fact, actually, gold had been discovered 
six years earlier near the San Fernando Mission. And it was well known in the United States, and it's probably the real reason that the United States fought the Mexican-American War in order to acquire Hmm. California and much else beside, along with San Francisco Bay, which is one of the great harbors of the world, too, which the United States wanted for further advances out into the Pacific Basin. So San Francisco starts with mining, and it suddenly begins to grow explosively in 1849 as tens of thousands of gold hungry men pour into the harbor of San Francisco and begin building San Francisco. Now, we haven't been able to locate anybody who made a lasting dynastic fortune on those early placer gold deposits. Mm -hmm. The people who really got lastingly wealth were the ones who got land, who Mm -hmm. bought or acquired land and rode it as more and more people piled in and wanted or needed that land. So that's a major role in the book, is the power of real estate to build great dynastic fortunes as well as high-rises. In the book, I actually propose that the American skyscraper actually comes out of the mines of the Comstock Lode, which went down 3,000 feet into a hot geothermal deposit and and forced technology. All the, the, the makings of a skyscraper were actually underground, including air conditioning, high-speed elevators, uh, early electric lights, etc. The earliest skyscrapers in New York City actually were partly built with the great fortunes from the Comstock load. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of connections that go into all of that. Let's go into your point about real estate, because the real estate of San Francisco is really quite small and circumscribed. We're 49 square miles. On the west, we face the Pacific Ocean. On the east, we face the San Francisco Bay. And on the north, we face the Golden Gate. So that we're surrounded by water on three sides. Our real estate is relatively small, number one. Number two, we were not blessed with huge potable water supplies, which is something that you cover very importantly in the book. So talk to me about real estate, because for our listeners outside of California, everyone talks about the elevated real estate market and home prices here in California. And it seems as though that tradition that you that you highlighted at the beginning of California or the beginning of San Francisco seems to have carried on to this day with high home prices and the scarcity of real estate and the, the high cost of real estate. You know, Jim, you're absolutely right about that. The, the limitation uh, imposed on the city by being surrounded on three sides by salt water means that land in in San Francisco has always been very valuable because, as I said, right from the beginning, there was tremendous demand for it by the gold seekers. And that's always been true. So San Francisco is the only city on the West Coast that has a tradition of row houses. Uh, You don't find that in Portland, Seattle, Los Angeles. It's only in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And that's because land was at such a premium. So if you could get in on the ground floor and get a land, preferably a lot of land, then uh, you stood a very good chance of having wealthy descendants if you could hold, if they could hold on to that land. And many did. And so I go into some of those families. Now, the other things that you need are water and energy. And yes. This is true for all cities. So chapter two is called uh, Water Mains and Bloodlines, and that's about 
how San Francisco reached out to grab water from ever-increasing distances to increase the value of the land. And then the chapter six, the second to last chapter, is about energy and how San Francisco or San Francisco's great families did the same thing. In the uh, chapter on water, I talk about how the Romans did the same thing. They used their great engineering skill to build the aqueducts that brought water into the city that made it the largest city of the ancient world, a million people on the basis of the aqueducts that brought it in. And then on the chapter in energy, I talk about how Pacific Gas and Electric and other energy companies did the same. If you see the power lines that converged on San Francisco, bringing energy taken from other parts of California, it looks just like the aqueducts, actually, Mm -hmm. except it's something very different, of course, than the Romans had. It was bringing energy into the city to keep it growing and to raise the value of the real estate. Let's talk about water, because as anyone familiar with the history of the West, water is a scarce commodity. It's the lifeblood of all civilization. And in the West, it's somewhat of a scarce commodity. So here you had San Francisco and these burgeoning dynastic elites who wanted San Francisco to become the New York, I guess, of the of the West Coast, but recognizing that or they the had, Rome. or the Rome of the United States or, or the world, they they recognized that this lack of large deposits of potable water was a problem. So they identified this engineer, Michael O'Shaughnessy, and statue of him is in uh, City Hall in San Francisco, who conceived and executed this plan to bring Sierra snowmelt from the Sierras, which is several hundred miles to the east of San Francisco, into San Francisco as a water supply. And as a result, to this day, we have some of the highest quality water in the United States. But talk to me about that project, because that was a a huge feat to bring that water into San Francisco, and not only San Francisco, but Hetch Hetchy water also supplies parts of the peninsula too. Talk to me about that, because that, that truly is a one of the underpinnings of the economic growth and success of the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, yes, I go into that the, the search for water in the earliest moment of San Francisco uh, from the gold rush, because San Francisco is largely built on sand, and so there's almost no streams in San Francisco. It's all under underground, and the local supplies are not nearly enough to supply a city, a major city, as San Francisco became. So I followed the aqueducts out of the city from the 1850s down the peninsula into San Mateo County, where the earliest water company began to dam every stream in San Mateo County to import it into San Francisco, then down into Santa Clara County and over into Alameda County to grab the streams that were there. And, of course, that was quite controversial because of the the farmers who needed that water, but San Francisco had a great deal more power than they did. And ultimately, then, Michael O'Shaughnessy, as you said, reaching out all the way to the Tuolumne River in the Sierra Nevada, and that required the damming of a spectacular glacial valley in a national park, Yosemite National Park. Of course, that was extremely controversial at the time and is to this very day. But I go into all of that, and there was 
Michael O'Shaughnessy had a predecessor, a Swiss engineer, a brilliant man named Hermann Schussler. I brought Hermann back because he's been largely forgotten and he deserves to be remembered. One of the reasons I wanted to do this is because I think one of the greatest educational movies on the West ever done is Roman Polanski's movie, Chinatown. So people have seen Chinatown and they think that Los Angeles was uniquely evil in reaching out to take the water from the Owens Valley. San Francisco did almost exactly the same thing. And the, the two aqueducts of those two cities actually are just a few miles apart, San Francisco's Inyo Yosemite Valley and the Los Angeles Aqueduct is only about 20 miles away from there, the headwaters of that. So the stories are very much the same. And it was, in Los Angeles's case, it was to raise the value of the, the land owned by a few people in the San Fernando Valley. In San Francisco's case, it was not only to raise the value of the land in San Francisco, but in the Santa Clara Valley and on the San Francisco Peninsula as well, where some of the magnates owned huge estates. They profited handsomely by subdividing those once there was an assured source of water. You mentioned energy. And of course, we don't have oil deposits in Northern California, but there are oil deposits in Southern California. And of course, San Francisco was the world headquarters of Chevron Oil Company. Tell me a little bit about California's history of oil energy, and the role that San Francisco played in developing that? Oil was discovered underneath what becomes Los Angeles, what it was Los Angeles at that time, early in the 20th century. And there was a lot of it. A lot of people don't realize that by 1905, 1910, California was the world's largest producer of oil. It wasn't Texas. That was to come later on. California was just pumping so much oil out of the Los Angeles area and the southern San Joaquin Valley. There was so much of it that someone said at the time they were drowning in it, and the price of it was crashing. Of course, it was called black gold because it was so valuable, but there was too much of it. Mm -hmm. And so they had to find new ways to use it up. Oh, and but the center of finance was San Francisco. And so Major financiers and wealthy people in San Francisco, like Michael DeYoung, who owned the San Francisco Chronicle, unbeknownst to his readers, was also the president of the California Petroleum Miners Association. So he could use his newspaper, the Chronicle, to constantly promote the use and consumption of more oil and to get people to invest in oil stocks. And there's some wonderful graphics from the Chronicle around 1910 or so, just glorying in the amount of oil and how we should use it. So I go into how they developed the market for petroleum. Mm. Uh, of course, the automobile was a wonderful way to use it up, but even more so were the battleships. So, Tell me about the battleships, because you spend some time talking about Mare Island, which of course was the huge port, uh, a huge naval port here in the Bay Area. And of course, yes. when the U.S. Navy switched from coal to oil, of course, that oil was right here in California. And of course, we were, we, the United States, were expanding our eyes into the Pacific. As you mentioned, we annexed Hawaii 
And as a result of the Spanish-American War, we became the... And the Philippines. And the Philippines. We became the protectors of the Philippines and then picked up Guam and uh, some other islands in the Pacific. So all of a sudden, the Navy and, of course, the Army became a very big presence in, in San Francisco. So the connection of oil, the U.S. Navy, and the ability to fuel the fleet. Talk to me about that. Yes. Uh, well, the, the military is very important in the book. It's a, that's chapter three. And because Lewis Mumford, who was kind of a mentor for me, the great historian of cities, said war and the city are born together. And so I show how that works in San Francisco with the Union Iron Works, which starts out uh, producing some of the most advanced mining machinery in the world and then segs into wartime production into the production of battleships. And that was extremely lucrative for its owners, the Scott brothers. With the Spanish-American War and the Philippine-American War in the late 19th, early 20th century, San Francisco's leaders see the opportunity for expanding the empire of the city out into the far Pacific, especially with the acquisition of Hawaii in 1898, I should say the forcible acquisition of Hawaii, as a naval base and coaling station, same with Midway and Guam, so that we could get to the Philippines and China. And so the oil deposits of California enabled these great battleships that San Francisco's uh, Union Ironworks was producing to get all the way across the Pacific without needing those coaling stations. Mm. It was a great advance in technology at that time. And to some extent, you know, the Bay Area has always then been the great arsenal for the United States, Silicon Valley itself. I think very few people understand that. They, we love the consumer products that Silicon Valley produces without realizing that the real reason that Silicon Valley was created in the first place was as an arsenal to create the most advanced kind of weaponry. Well, that, that goes back to the gold rush and the Union Iron Works and the arsenal that San Francisco was at that time. Much of the technology, the technological advances of Silicon Valley are actually rooted in mining technology. Let's move on to the second part of your book that deals with thought leaders. And again, in the 19th, the 19th century, the early 20th century, newspapers were the equivalent of today's internet. And San Francisco had a, had a panoply of newspapers. Of course, we had the San Francisco Chronicle, the Examiner, the Call, the Bulletin, to mention but a few. However, talk to me about the owners of those newspapers and how they shaped political thought, social thought, and economic thought here in the greater Bay Area, and for that matter, in California. I'm fascinated by the newspapers. I still read them. Not many people do these days, but um, I'm a great fan of newsprint. So early in the 20th century, San Francisco had a number of newspapers, as you said, as all great cities did at that time. And the three major dailies were the San Francisco Call, owned by the Spreckles family. Mm -hmm. And it was a sort of progressive Republican. And then you had the San Francisco Chronicle, owned by the DeYoung family, and that was Republican, staunchly Republican. Mm -hmm. And then uh, William Randolph Hearst, examiner, 
the flagship of the entire Hearst empire, which started in San Francisco in 1887. And that was mildly democratic, but it was mostly just Hearst. It was his opinions. And of course, that's very very important uh, because it grows into this great media empire, which is nationwide at the very least. And what was fascinating to me was that these families hated one another. (laughs) And so if you wanted to find out the scandal of the peccadilloes of one family, you'd read the rival newspaper Uh and they would reveal those scandals. And this was really vexing, especially to Michael D. Young and William Randolph Hearst, because the Spreckles family was so wealthy that they were kind of mavericks. They could do whatever they wanted because they had this great fortune based largely in Hawaiian sugar, but a lot of other stuff too. So in 1913, Michael D. Young ostensibly buys the Spreckles newspaper and puts it out of business. But in fact, actually behind the young was William Randolph Hearst. And he adds the call to his stable of yellow journals. And so, you know, after 1913, it really sort of put the kibosh, the the delicious scandals (laughs) that you could read before then about these great families. But I love reading the papers before that because there were practically no libel laws at that time. Oh, Oh, they really got dirty. They got down and dirty. Tell us about William Randolph Hearst, because as you said, spent a lot of his time in San Francisco. His father came here as a minor. His mother was a great philanthropist at Berkeley. Talk to us about the not only the impact on California that William Randolph Hearst, but on the United States as a whole, whether it was especially as regards politics. William Randolph Hearst is a fascinating character. As you said, he, well, he's born in San Francisco at California and Montgomery Street, in, I think it's 1862. His father was an extremely successful miner. He had a fabulous nose for ore. And his mother was a remarkable person, very philanthropic. Mm-hmm. Um, but William Randolph Hearst writes to his father in 1885 uh, a private letter, which is in the Bancroft Library at UC Berkeley. And he advises his father to take the family money out of mining, which is in insecure and put it into land, put it into real estate. Uh And he says at the end of this letter, he says, every atom of humanity added to the struggling mass means another figure to the landlord's bank account. (laughs) His father, who was soon to become Senator Hearst, didn't need any urging. He was buying up land, or I should say acquiring land, by the hundreds of thousands. It's estimated by one uh, Mexican historian that the Hearst controlled up to 7 million acres of land in Mm. Mexico, hundreds of thousands of acres in California in the Southwest, as well as great mines like Butte, Montana, and the Homestake Mine in South Dakota, which just kept showering them with money. And so William Randolph Hearst uses this to build up this enormous media empire, not only of newspapers and magazines, but a Hollywood studio producing movies, etc. It made him the equivalent of a billionaire in his time, a multi-billionaire, so that he could build and collect castles. Of course, people know about the one at San Simeon Mm -hmm. State Park, but you won't hear when you go to the castle at San Simeon and it's a fascinating place. You won't hear William Randolph Hearst's flirtation 
with the Nazis, mm-hmm. um, with fascism uh, in the 1930s. Um, he syndicated leading Nazis at that time because he had started out somewhat progressive and liberal because he wanted the working class to buy his newspapers. Mm -hmm. And so he was the champion of the working men. But in the 30s, particularly as uh, President Roosevelt institutes progressive taxation, uh, Hearst shifts to the far right. He begins syndicating leading Nazis. He actually tried to get Adolf Hitler to write for his newspapers, oh but Hitler was—he was just—he was too busy with other yes, stuff, yeah. invading time, Poland so. and all the rest of it. Yes, yes, yes. But he did—he—he—he he, he wrote. He had articles by Mussolini. He said at one point that communism was like a mental disease, and a nation, if necessary, had to be put in a straitjacket uh, until it came back to its senses. And by that, he meant fascism. That's in the book, but it is, as I said, something that the guides at San Simeon are not going to tell you. Mm-hmm. But oh. he's a fascinating character. There's something like 12, 14 biographies of William Randolph Hearst. I think I've read them all. Mm-hmm. He is just an, an absolutely fascinating character. And in not fact, altogether admirable. N- not altogether admirable, but in, in terms of coming back to the original point about dynastic the creation of uh, of these elitist dynasties, the Hearst family is still a very significant player in the publishing world, also a, a presence here in the Bay Area and in California. And that dynasty that was created back in the mid-1800s continues to this day as a force in publishing and real estate and, and other, other areas. That's right. They largely kept William Randolph Hearst's properties Many of the properties. It's hard to say whether they're still involved in mining. Fortune magazine ran a whole issue in the 1930s on the Hearst Empire and found that even with their resources, they couldn't figure out how how many mines William Randolph Hearst owned because the the corporation is privately owned. Mm -hmm. And so they don't have to divulge what they own, but it's very extensive. And a number of the Hearst descendants are billionaires to this day by Forbes stand, you know, uh, Forbes rankings. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're, yeah, they've done very well for themselves and they've kept it largely in the family. And there are a lot of Hearsts mm-hmm. and they, they've done quite well. Let's come back to Phoebe Hearst, the mother of William Randolph Hearst, because as you said, she was a, an outstanding philanthropist. She was also very close to her son, but she was an outstanding philanthropist, very interested in education, and played a a very significant role in the development of University of California, Berkeley. She was named as, I think, the first female regent of the University of California. Talk to me about Mrs. Hurst and the University of California, Berkeley. She's also a fascinating character, very strong personality. She and George, her husband, didn't see much of each other because George was off prospecting all the time. And I think that suited Phoebe just fine. (laughs) Birthing William Randolph Hearst was so difficult for her, it nearly killed her. I don't think she wanted any more kids. She was fascinated by education and she had a a ravenous curiosity. So she, once George was dead in um, 1891, he died in, in the Senate. Uh, once he was safely dead, then Phoebe moved to Berkeley, which was just a little cow town at that time with State University. And she took the State University under her very capacious wing, perhaps in rivalry with her fellow Bonanza queen, 
Jane Stanford, who had her own university down the peninsula. Yes. And Phoebe single-handedly made the University of California at Berkeley into a world-class university by just constantly pumping her money into it. And uh, one of the most interesting things she did was in 1898, she sponsored an international competition to make the campus the most beautiful university in the world. And it has a magnificent setting directly opposite the Golden Gate. Yes. And so I tell the story of the, the competition and the plan for the university and the significance of the great central axis of the university, which aims straight at the Golden Gate. And that has great symbolic importance because the architect, John Galen Howard, said when he dedicated the Hearst Memorial Mining Building in 1904, he said, the axis stands for alma mater's peaceful and beneficent conquest of the Pacific Ocean. And that had great significance later on, considering the domed pantheon-like building that was built at the top of the hill at the head of the axis aimed at the Golden Gate. Tell me about the importance of... UC Berkeley, in the context of The Gadget, Ernest Lawrence, Oppenheimer, and of course, we've recently seen this summer the film Oppenheimer. Talk to me about the the role that UC Berkeley played and the seminal role that Phoebe Hurst played in building the mining building and endowing and endowing Berkeley in so many ways. The important role that her philanthropy played in building Berkeley to a point where uh, the Lawrences and the Oppenheimers became essentially the fathers of the atom bomb? Well, Phoebe, as I said, did many things for the university. She endowed and largely created the uh, Berkeley Department of Anthropology, which was a subject that fascinated her very much. She gave this great mining building for a while. Berkeley was the greatest school of mining in the world and attracted many young men to what was considered a glamorous profession at that time, mining engineering. She gave enormous numbers of books to the library to build it into a world-class university library. She particularly helped the co-eds, the women students, uh, because they were much respected at the time, and she became their best friend, built them a, a gymnasium, swimming pool, etc., Unfortunately, she died in the flu epidemic in 1919. Mm -hmm. That was good for William Randolph Hearst because (laughs) he was completely dependent on, well, not completely, but largely dependent on mom's purse strings until she died and left virtually everything to her willful son. And then he was on his own. Then he could really collect more newspapers, magazines, and start building the great castle at San Simeon. But meanwhile, Phoebe had really gotten Berkeley off the ground. And in the 1920s, it built a world-class department of chemistry and physics. Hmm. And in the late 20s, two remarkable physicists happened to arrive within six months of each other. Ernest Lawrence, who became the first Nobel laureate that Berkeley had. And then uh, six months later, uh, J. Robert Oppenheimer, whom you see, of course, in the, the great movie. Now, Lauren, who was a superstar physicist at that time, he created the cyclotrons, 
which got him the Nobel Prize. He doesn't play much of a role in the movie, but he should have. I was the first person to see his declassified papers hmm. at the Bancroft Library at UC Berkeley. And that revealed a lot of interesting information about his role in creating the atomic bomb, um, which is, the credit is usually given to Oppenheimer. But Lawrence should get a lot of credit, too. But the university administration and the regents don't want the public to associate the university with the creation and the management, the creation and promotion, I should say, of omnicidal weapons, the mm -hmm. nuclear weapons, first the atomic bomb and then the hydrogen bomb, through the deliberate rivalry between Lawrence uh, Livermore Laboratory and Los Alamos, which was largely the doing of Ernest Lawrence. That wasn't Oppenheimer that set up the rival laboratory at Livermore. The university had a kind of nominal management of those laboratories. And when I was an undergraduate at the university, there was that was a hot topic, whether a university had the business of being involved in that kind of research mm -hmm. and promotion and development. Now it's a dead letter. Nobody talks about it. Very few people know anything about it. But I talk a lot about that in the book, the university's role in that, because the regents, a number of the regents, had monetary interests in the nuclear weapons industry and in mining, as I said, particularly uranium mining, which once the bombs, you know, once the atomic bomb was developed, suddenly uranium had enormous value and created great fortunes of its own. And among those was Homestake Mining Company, which was owned by the Hearst family, largely owned by the Hearst family. Mm -hmm. And as one of the regents and professors said at that time, we took Homestake out of gold mining and put it into uranium, and we did very well in it. Amazing. And of course, he was overseeing the, um, the weapons labs because that was, his name was Donald McLaughlin, and he was, was giving advice to the, the Atomic Energy Commission, which had a, an office just off campus on Bancroft Way. So this is a story that I'm the first to tell. And then it was in Lawrence's 184-inch cyclotron at the head of the great axis of the university that they began separating the U-235, some of which was used in the bomb that hit Hiroshima. Mm. And the university doesn't really like to talk about that very much, um, if at all. Gray, when we began our conversation, you talked about Imperial San Francisco, you talked about the, the building of these great fortunes, and early in the conversation you also referenced you were raised in what was then, what was not Silicon, called Silicon Valley then, but which became Silicon Valley. What about the great fortunes, some would say dynastic elites, that have emerged over the last 30 to 40 years in Silicon Valley? The Steve Jobs, the Mark Zuckerbergs, the Elon Musks, to mention but a few. Of course, Mark Benioff here in San Francisco. Talk to me about those huge dynastic elites and fortunes that have been created, again, here in the Bay Area, greater San Francisco, if you will. Talk to me about that. Any parallels between the creation, between that creativity, which we've seen in technology, and the, the drive and ambition of the 19th century dynastic elites? Well, they're not quite dynastic yet, because the 
many of the creators of those huge fortunes are first generation. It remains to be seen, you know, what their descendants will do with that if there are descendants. They develop remarkable technology that we all rely on now, as well as the weaponry that I was talking about earlier, and in the process created these huge fortunes. The ironic thing is that many of them are libertarians, and they believe that they did it on their own through their own smarts, ingenuity, and everything, when in fact, actually, it was largely the product of federal subsidies, federal subventions, as I said, to largely, you know, to create the most advanced weaponry imaginable and the ballistics to deliver those weapons. So the interesting thing is that those titans didn't particularly want to live in Silicon Valley. It's not an exciting place, even though their companies may be based there. And they moved to San Francisco, mm-hmm. say probably in the 1990s or so. They moved in and they had a profound effect on the city because they had more money than God. And so they could begin buying up a lot of the uh, most valuable real estate, and that made it almost impossible for people of medium means to own the real estate. Now, what's been interesting in the last few years, because people are talking about San Francisco's doom loop, um, which I think is quite real, actually, is the fact that in the uh, 80s and 90s, A lot of the old San Francisco businesses, which have these old fortunes behind them, which I'm kind of harsh on in the book, um, they began leaving. They began pulling out Mm -hmm. the great law firms, the shipping firms, and others. They began leaving or being consolidated with nationwide firms, and they began leaving the city. Those people were very important to the cultural life of the city because they had a commitment to place. These Silicon Valley kings don't. Mm -hmm. They can live anywhere in the world, and they often do, because they can have multiple mansions, super yachts, etc. And I think they've had a profoundly harmful effect on the city, particularly since COVID, because they can leave, and many of them have left. And um, it's left San Francisco's kind of a, a husk of what it once was when there were local families with commitment to the city and the love of the place. Remember that a lot of these guys, and they're almost all guys, uh, they believe that they're building the future. They have no real interest in the past. They don't collect old masters or anything, and they don't think that the past is very important. I do. Mm-hmm. Because, but they believe that they're building the future, they're winning the future, they believe in moving fast and breaking things, and they certainly have been very good at that. I think that they have been largely responsible for breaking San Francisco and making it, or giving it, some of the profound problems that it now has. Well, Gray, in the remaining few minutes of the podcast, what are your closing thoughts about imperial San Francisco of the 19th and early 20th century that you outline in your book. And then in conclusion, the new San Francisco. You know, I hope people will get the audio book, listen to it, perhaps buy the book itself, and look at the website, which is imperialsanfrancisco.com, because in that I was able to use a lot of the illustrations that are so important to the book argument, and some that aren't in the original book. And so you'll be able to see the argument 
as a kind of teaser for getting the book, either the hard copy book or the audio book. Because as I said at the start, I want people to know this isn't just about one city. It's about all great cities and what they're doing to the planet today. I've become really concerned with the rate of urban growth and how, for example, port cities all over the world are continuing to grow skyscrapers on land that will soon be flooding, sometimes already is flooding, because of climate change and sea level rise and tidal surges. It's amazing what's happening. And it's not just in San Francisco. It's happening in places like Jakarta, Miami, of course, Washington, D.C. It's, it's, uh, it's really quite amazing to me. So it's about urban parasitism. It's about urban metastasis. So I hope that people will understand that it simply uses one city to illustrate mm -hmm. all these things and how those who control the mass media control our thought, sometimes, often to their own growing peril. Because there, we all share the same planet. We are all dependent on the biosphere which these cities are wrecking. And so that's, I think, what I want to accomplish with Imperial San Francisco, to encourage discussion of these issues which just aren't discussed as far as I see. And I hope the book will have that effect. And great. Did you do the narration for the uh, audio version of Imperial San Francisco? I did do the narration. It uh, took four trips to a studio in Los Angeles to do that. And there is a new introduction to the book. And I talk about being in Los Angeles to record it. That was very exciting, actually, to be able to do that and to read my own words 25 years later on. And Gray, how can our listeners follow you? Website, Twitter handle? I try not to um, be too involved with social media because it's hard enough for me to just handle email. Anybody can go to imperialsanfrancisco.com and you can find out a lot about the book and about, about me. And there is a way there. There's a contact button and uh, you can contact me. I welcome comments. You know, I'm, I'm curious about what people think about the book, as long as it's not too vitriolic, I suppose. But, you know, it's, it's something that you can wander around in and, and for, for a long, long time. Oh, and there's also a connection to the Living New Deal, my current project. And that is like the Winchester Mystery House of the New Deal. And that you can wander around for in for weeks. And um, <laughs> it's a fascinating site that I'm very proud of and which just continues to grow with the help of people from all around the country. Well, Gray, once again, I want to thank you for joining us today from Sicily to share your insights and perspectives on Imperial San Francisco. And you've really given us a very rich, nuanced sense of what our history is and who and what the great founders of San Francisco, the roles that they played. So thank you for sharing that with us because your research and your point of view is not one that we often hear. No, it's not. And Jim, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. You're a wonderful leader. Well, Gray, my pleasure. And I look forward to having you back. And I would love to talk to you about the Living New Deal. That will be an additional podcast on its own. Thank you very much, Jim. My pleasure. And for our listeners, today's episode is number 444. The San Francisco Experience podcast is carried on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Pandora, 
18 platforms in total, with listeners in 60 countries. Feedspot recently recognized us as a top 25 California news podcast. This has been the San Francisco Experience Podcast with Jim Herlihy coming to you from San Francisco.